1: Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And this is one of the 52 most exciting weeks of the year for NFL bettors, Schedule Release Week. Uh, I'll cut straight to my opening question for you, John. How early is too early to bet week one lines,
0: totals, etc.? Uh, You know, full disclosure, I I did see week one lines posted on Twitter last night, and I noticed that no favorite is giving more than seven points in the first week, which is a little surprising. Mm. Um, That said, I think too early, maybe like late August. So the rest (laughs) of May, June, July, most of August, all that's too early. Um, You know, that said as well, I'm amazed that an NFL three hour special about a schedule of games going after the rest of spring and most of the summer have passed, getting better ratings and a remarkable number of playoff games and other sports is fascinating. And I noticed late that. Uh, apparently, uh, ESPN2 and NFL Network each ran their own three-hour specials about the schedule. So about uh, – sort of something about nothing, you might say. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, not for season ticket holders, which is a tiny fraction of the NFL fan base overall, it does tell you much about which weekend you might plan to get away because your team is going to be away that week. And, you know, for fewer still, maybe you live in New York, let's say, and you have a lot of relatives around Boca Raton, you know, possibly at the Del Boca Vista retirement community where Seinfeld's <laughs> parent lives. <You> know, so <laughs> yeah. you always visit Miami that weekend, right, when the Jets play there and you want to book plane tickets well in advance. So that you know, that's something. Otherwise, I, yeah, I don't get it. You know, beyond a two-minute glance at the schedule, maybe a three-minute read of a beat guy's analysis, the ups and downs of the season – Maybe. But I will say this, you know, when I was covering the NBA in the 1990s, schedule day, which is around mid-July then, that's a huge deal for me personally. You know, I'm sure I knew that covering the Nets, I'd be out west for games on Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and possibly also Monday on Thanksgiving week. Yay. Uh, but when you're <laughs> single, it kind of matters if you'll spend 36 hours in L.A. or Phoenix or, say, Sacramento. Right. Uh, just saying. <laughs> and then, you know, oh, Saturday night games in uh, Miami or San Antonio in the middle of winter. Interesting. Uh, Will you be home for Christmas back then? Yes. But flying home Christmas Eve or flying out Christmas night, quite possibly. So I had a reason to be jazzed up about a schedule, but uh, I don't understand why the average NFL fan is. (laughs)
1: So, out of all of those uh, things you touched on, the the thing that that resonates most with me is just you mentioning Del Boca Vista, and me, of course, uh, going straight in my mind to Frank Costanza's wonderful mispronunciation, Del Visto Becco. Um, <laughs> but uh, as for the NFL stuff, uh, I actually heard someone on a podcast pinpointing a week one score total that they wanted to bet the under on uh, <laughs> is uh, Bears Rams. We're not even sure who the starting quarterback for the Bears is going to be. And you're ready to lock in this bet. Uh, but then again, uh, here, here's my oddball twist on this. Professional sports bettors might say they don't want to bet a game four months out. Cause they don't want to lock up that money. They'll often talk about that with yeah. futures bets. Most people, however, are not professional bettors ultimately are losing bettors. So by locking up their money, they're preventing themselves from making other losing bets with that money in the meantime. <laughs> right. uh, I re- I re- it's kind of a, a glass half full attitude toward betting. But if you're the type of person who's going to blow that money on a bad, impulsive bet, and you think you see value right now in a week one game, maybe that's actually a good use of your bankroll. Sort well, of. It's
0: funny, it's funny you say that because I just found out this week that finally uh, we're getting a, a refund on our taxes. And mm. you know, with a twin brother who's a CPA and his wife as a master's in finance, any, any any finance person will tell you that you're actually giving an interest-free loan to the government and then getting it back later. So now 20, 30 years ago, you could make 5% of that money. So you really were blowing a little money. Now you make, you know, one-tenth of 1%. But um, so philosophically, yeah, you shouldn't be happy to get a refund. It's better to actually owe just enough money that you don't pay a penalty because then you're getting an interest-free loan yourself. Mm. Um, but you know what? I was happy to get the refund. Though. And I think <laughs> so I think that goes with your amateur betting thing. Yeah. If he's got a sane amount of uh, disposable income to bet on uh, sports and he blows 20 percent of it on NFL futures, then he can't you know, lose that money that quickly. So, yeah, I right. like the thinking. <laughs>
1: Okay. Um and uh one one quick uh, tangent here on the NFL schedule. Uh my 11-year-old son and I looked at the Eagles schedule and he wanted to go game by game and tell me which ones they'd win and which ones they'd <laughs> lose. Now, their are over under at most books is 7 wins. Uh do you want to hazard a guess uh John as to what my son's predicted record for them
0: is? Well, uh, for somebody his age, I would say hopefully he he gets ten wins, but he's your son, so I'm going to say five. <laughs>
1: you 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 uh, you made the wrong uh, assumption there. He has them going thirteen and four, including oh, nice, six nice. and zero in the
0: NFC East. I think that's very healthy though for a youngster. That, that that's what you should you know that you should th- you should see life that way. Like I expect things to go well for me, so I, I think it's actually should be reassuring. Like okay, so my son in general thinks that the world is going to go okay for him and after you know god knows the last year um that's that's a seriously that's a pretty good thing so i'd be encouraged yeah. by
1: that yeah i think you're right he his, his attitude is healthy in a way nevertheless uh, if he's setting the line i'm taking the i'm taking the under
0: <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> all right thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 142 of gamble on if you missed any of our previous 141 episodes they're all available on spreaker apple podcast and spotify please subscribe and give us one of those five star ratings that make the podcasting world go round
0: And coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by sports and gaming attorney uh, Dan Wallach. He's got a lot of attention lately for his analysis of Florida Gaming Compact, but he also has thoughts to share on California and some other states, too. Uh, Plus, we'll get his reflections on the Supreme Court overturning PASPA, a decision that turns three years old this Friday. Uh, But first, it's been a busy week for my reporting, at least, on the world of gambling. So let's get to it.
2: Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling.
1: We start this week with a highly controversial mainstream sports story that has significant and obvious sports betting implications. Kentucky Derby winner Medina Spirit is likely to be disqualified. And no, it wasn't cancel culture that got him. It was a positive test for elevated amounts of the steroid beta-methasone. Trainer Bob Baffert has been indefinitely suspended from competing at Churchill Downs, although Derby officials are awaiting the result of a second sample before a DQ is issued. If that happens, Mandaloon will be declared the Derby winner. Uh, The Preakness is this Saturday, and as of now, Medina Spirit is expected to race in it. But for our purposes, the big topic here is what happens with wagers on the Derby. Simply put, even if Medina Spirit is disqualified, nothing changes with any bets. If you got paid out on the results from the day of the race, you keep your money. If you appeared to lose on the day of the race, you can't collect now. Uh, John this is the way it has to be, right? They they can't start holding all payouts until the drug tests come back, can they? Uh, And and how damaging is this to horse betting? Are are bettors going to shy away at all because they'll feel like they can't trust the people running the sport?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's damaging in retaining the casual bettor. Mm-hmm. but not as much with the hardcore players. I mean, harness racing is a long and sometimes sordid history on this. And I've met lifers who say they came to realize, Hey, if I can just figure out who the fix is in for, i I'll win money and they'll <laughs> win money. It's all good. It's almost part of the betting process, you know, especially the Meadowlands racetrack. Part of the reason it's so iconic is that it's a mile around and a lot of harness racing tracks are a half mile. And I've been told that it's remarkably easy for the drivers in harness racing to sort of set themselves up so that they let somebody else through. And, and even I've I've heard about how, uh, let's say a driver's down on his luck, something happens in his life, and he really needs some uh, some winnings, they can help each other out. And, you know, you know what? This is a tough year for you. You're going to get a little better. And uh, next year, you know, it'll be on somebody else. And I was just like, this is mind-boggling. I mean, you know, and, and it's not even – as corrupt as a lot of the harness racing betters think it is, but it's not completely honest either. So as far as Baffert, I mean, he's a charming guy, both on TV and in person, but you know, someone noted on his, on Twitter, you know, this dog ate my homework thing. It's it's (laughs) going to be a bit much at this point, you know, maybe he's not Lance Armstrong after all, but the conversations on the wiretaps of horse racing trainers and others laid out in those March, 2020 indictments of dozens across the industry uh, revealed not only rampant cheating, but also by prominent names, trainers, and they got into the, you know, any means necessary mode, I'd call it. Uh, so I, look, I'll say, um, I'm less likely to make a bet on a race that a Bafford horse is in to be perfectly honest.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I, I think you hit on the key thing. There is the separation between the serious horse better and the casual horse better. I, I definitely think this impacts the mindset of of those casual betters. Um, comparing it to the sport that I know best boxing, uh, if you're a hardcore boxing fan, You understand what you're getting yourself into. You've seen a million bad decisions from judges. It's part of the sport. You roll with it when it happens. But if you're a newbie, you know, say you got invited to your buddy's house for a big pay-per-view and you were enjoying the action, kind of getting into it. And then at the end of the main event, they announced a decision in favor of the wrong guy. You're like, well, screw that. I'm never watching this stupid sport again. Um, And if you bet on it and got screwed even worse. So I imagine it's like that with betting on the horses. If you're a serious horse bettor hey, this happens, on to the next race. But if you bet Mandaloon in the Derby and it was one of the first times you've ever bet on a race, then you're crying foul and hating the sport and you might never bet again. So, so I think that's the damage this does to horse racing. It scares off the casual bettors and also casual fans. You know, what's, what's the fun in watching the horses come down the stretch if in the back of your mind you're just thinking now about who's juiced up and and whether the result will stand? I think it really hurts in that regard.
0: Yeah, it's a shame because there has been efforts in the last couple of years to actually try and finally, you know, uh, put a lid on this stuff and get rid of it. And it seems it's just it's just too ingrained in the sport. And obviously, you know, you look at baseball, it's steroids and and other sports. It's just um, it's like the competition level and, and that any means necessary mode I yeah. mentioned it's just hard to get people to do the right thing when doing the wrong thing can make you so much money. So we'll see what happens here.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, this is probably a topic that would require deeper expo- exploration at, at another time, but just sort of an offshoot of this, that it's got my mind going on to is that you can probably start holding payouts a little longer and a little differently on events um If we reach a point where retail betting is dead and it's all digital, um, if we ever get to that point, then I think it's a little easier with everything being in digital bankrolls and digital wallets to maybe not that you can wait a couple of weeks for a drug test to come back, but in general, you could probably wait a little longer with with actual bet slips guys are going to want to get paid immediately once once they announce uh, you know a few minutes after the race nobody's been disqualified it's official this is the result and and you're just never going to change that and so as long as that's the case there's no reasonable way to expect that these after the fact changes and disqualifications could ever impact the betting results.
0: Yeah, I think maybe they just have to put all sales final
1: on the board uh, in big yeah, letters <laughs> basically. Yep. All right, moving on to our second story. Illinois is always the last state to report handle and revenue figures. So while we anticipate April numbers from New Jersey on Friday, we just got March numbers out of Illinois, and they're pretty hefty, $633.6 million in handle, making Illinois the number three sports betting state for March, just about $7 million behind Nevada and comfortably ahead of Pennsylvania. This brings the national total sports betting handle for March to a record $4.61 billion, a figure that probably won't be topped until football season starts. In Illinois, the number's could have been even higher if not for a ban on betting on in-state college teams which did come into play during March Madness as five of the 67 games were unavailable in Illinois uh, as well as the return of the in-person registration requirement. Uh, DraftKings was number one in the state in handle while FanDuel was number one in revenue and Barstool Sportsbook made its debut about one third of the way into the month and placed fifth in handle and fourth in revenue. John, is it fair to jump to the conclusion that Illinois versus Pennsylvania for third place in betting handle is over already? not really a competition anymore? Uh, and, and any other numbers from Illinois that stand out to you?
0: Yeah, I mean, Pennsylvania may not be a mature market yet, but it's like it's looking at colleges while <laughs> Illinois sports betting market hasn't even hit puberty yet. And but it's already taller than Pennsylvania. And yeah. well, that is one strain metaphor. <laughs> but it's a way of saying that if Pennsylvania can't beat Illinois at this juncture, not sure they ever will particularly at some point Illinois will release the hounds and allow college sports betting on in-state schools too and like rid of the silly in-person requirements so look heck I, I would see what odds you can get on Illinois even passing New Jersey once Illinois passes that college betting that's even if New Jersey opens the door for that massive pent-up demand for betting on Rutgers football here in New
2: Jersey.
1: <laughs> yeah I mean I, I don't know it's hard to think of like what where to set the line on when Illinois is going to pass New Jersey I don't know if It's possible it could happen by the end of this year, but it's definitely coming. It's so much uh, of a more populous state that it it will get there, it would appear. Um, If anyone wants uh, a really in-depth drill down on the Illinois numbers, I suggest checking out our colleague Chris Altruda's Twitter feed, at Altruda73. He broke it down over the course of like 23 tweets the other day. (laughs) Um, One number that stood out to me, Parlay bets accounted for 81% of FanDuel's March revenue. Wow. Uh, FanDuel has been a, a pioneer in these same game parlays. Uh, they've really differentiated themselves with that, and it's working. Uh, and, and honestly, if you're betting for entertainment, of course you're going to take a shot on an eight leg parlay that pays 200 to 1 instead of some boring old minus 110 bet on a spread. Uh, parlays were 54% of DraftKings revenue and about one third of points bets revenue. So FanDuel at 81% is really separating itself on that front. Whoever came up with same game parlays should be in line for a raise.
0: Uh, I, I can't. I just. Parlays just kill me. I don't know. I just. <laughs> uh, I, I can't. I just, just buy a lottery ticket. I mean, <laughs> no, you're this illusion that you're like in control and like, I'm going to take eight random events and, and pick each side of it. And it's not luck at all. It's because I'm really good at this. I'm going to win. And <laughs> all right, I lost again. And I lose like 90% of the time, but I won that time back in August. I remember I won uh, $300 and so, or $1,500 or $1, Five thousand dollars, and so yeah, all right. I've lost fifteen thousand since then <laughs> on parlays, but but I won five. I'm ahead by five thousand, right? That's the old thing about a gambler, you know. Oh yeah, I won two thousand dollars this weekend in Las Vegas. You know how much did you lose? I mean, you won two thousand, you lost six thousand. Think that puts you behind. I I I can't deal with parlays, and I get pitched constantly you know the marketing oh you got a you know extra parlay and if you only lose one leg out of eight you get a refund and like <laughs> right. if you get seven out of eight bets right and you break <laughs> even that's not really
1: a smart bet well it's i i still think it's a better roi than the lottery i wouldn't quite go so far as to compare <laughs> it to that but um yeah i do i do like when they offer those uh, get your money back deals when it's only when you only need two out of three legs or three out of four legs, that's when I'll go for it. Seven out of eight. No, you're still, you're still a big long (laughs) shot. Um, one other little curiosity in the Illinois numbers, tennis had the second most handle of any sport behind basketball in March, uh, ahead of hockey and soccer way ahead of golf. It's surprising because there weren't any big tennis tournaments in March at the Miami open. I, I don't know. I, I just wouldn't it's have expected. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty big, but it's not like it's a major. Yeah. I wouldn't have expected tennis to beat hockey, soccer or golf in the month of March. And it beat them all for whatever that's worth.
0: Yeah. Apparently the pacing of the, uh, the games themselves is, uh, is is makes it easy to bet you're not scrambling to get to get it in before the next point right um but still no i don't get it
1: (laughs) all right um for our third story this week let's go to tennessee where a different form of legal sports betting might soon be coming the volunteer state is working toward adopting new sports betting regulations which could potentially take effect early next year which include changes such as scrapping the controversial payout cap and allowing peer-to-peer wagering. Uh, And that's the one that's a potential game changer. It would turn sports betting into a form of gambling where you don't need to bet against the house. You can set your own lines and choose your side of the lines and just wait for another better to take your action. Zen Sports is the operator that wants to introduce this in Tennessee and It's possible that if they're permitted to offer peer-to-peer betting, other operators might try it as well. There are still details to be worked out, such as how the state will tax peer-to-peer betting revenue. But John, what do you make of the concept of peer-to-peer sports betting? And do you expect it will catch on in other states as well if Tennessee has success with it? (laughs)
0: Well, yeah. I mean, here in New Jersey, with most new gambling innovations, we tend to say, hey, kid, hold my beer and go get me another one. As, uh, new Jersey is the only U.S. state that already has this on horse races, though in limited doses. I've seen it in action. It's, re- it's like you feel like you're in a video game. Um, <laughs> they call it exchange wagering here and in the U.K., Ireland and elsewhere. Uh, new Jersey actually is talking about this for all sports as well, which is not that surprising given their, you know, century or more history of gambling uh being a gambling friendly state but i'm kind of stunned again though the tennessee of all places might pass this bill first you know Hmm. casinos whoa they've only been in las vegas for about 75 years and atlantic city for more than 40 years and in numerous states for more than 20 years but you know let's wait and see if that experiment takes place before (laughs) rushing to anything we're a little cautious here in tennessee but mobile sports betting which most states don't even have yet absolutely and let's try this peer-to-peer exchange thing while we're at it why not so I'm just not sure to what, what to make of the psychology of your Tennessee legislature is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, they're proving to be an outlier in so many ways. <laughs> um, on the surface, as someone who has never tried peer-to-peer sports betting and thus has no personal expertise in how it works, it seems like DFS to create an opportunity for the more skilled sports bettors to be more profitable yes. uh, for the people who who really put in the time and effort to find spots to prey on the fish. Uh, And and I'm not sure how good that is for the sports betting economy long-term. But you don't know until you try. I I think this is the sort of thing where if Tennessee does start allowing this, uh, other states stand back, let Tennessee act as your guinea pig, and uh, everyone else will watch for a little while and see how it goes. Um, I'll say this. If it comes to Pennsylvania, you better believe I'll set some tilted boxing lines and see if anyone
0: takes the bait. Yeah, I mean, i uh, would give you an idea. About five years ago, I did a story and my editor uh, for the Bergen Record and my editor's like, this isn't real, right? This is not, this is not happening. I said, it's happening because what, what it was, was uh, a couple of these expert bettors, there's about, there were about eight of them, like a cartel, right? And they had right. 25 screens and 30 screens in front of them and all kinds of TV sets. And the one guy said, well, here's the deal. I don't like the favorite in this race and, you know, Arlington, wherever it was, somewhere around the country. And, uh, but if he gets off to a good start the two speed horses have been scratched so if he gets off to any kind of a start at all he can't lose I just don't think he's going to win so he didn't bet the horse originally in five seconds the horse is out to the lead and he is pounding anybody <laughs> who because you can bet uh, a win or not win right so right. that's the, the horse racing holy grail for a lot of betters. I know the favorite's not going to win but I don't know who is going to win so you try all kinds of combinations because you know that the horse is going to win but here you just say he's not going to win who, who wants 100 Bucks on that action, and boom, you get it. And so, this horse is out to the lead, and for about maybe 15 seconds, probably he's pounding you know, five, six thousand dollars worth of bets all over the place because he already knows the horse is going to win. And then, at that point, the amateurs is a point where the amateurs realize, Oh crap, this horse is going to win, and so they don't bet against him anymore. And uh, so and then he was like god damn it you know he was hoping to get a little bit more of the fish right to fall for it so uh, there's no reason that probably can't happen in any sports so i think the dfs analogy i hadn't thought about it but uh is a good one where yeah this is going to be great for uh the whales and not so great for the minnows
2: it's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling let's get to the gamble on interview
1: When we had our boss, Adam Small, on the podcast a few weeks ago, we had him playing Gamble on Trivia, trying to name the other interview guests who'd appeared at least three times. Well, this week, the answer to that question gets an update. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast for the third time one of America's foremost sports and gaming attorneys the co-founder of the University of New Hampshire Law Sports Wagering and Integrity Program, the co-host of Conduct Detrimental, the sports law podcast, and a contributor at The Athletic, Dan Wallach. Dan, welcome once again to Gamble On.
2: Yeah, I feel like the the Chevy Chase... Of gamble on, right? It wasn't he <laughs> the? Uh, oh no, who was it? That no, Steve. No, was it Steve, Steve Martin. Martin? Steve uh, Martin was The like record there, yeah. for the number of uh, co-hosting appearances on SNL. I think I've got a long way to go to catch up to Steve <laughs> Martin. But thank you for allowing me to tie. I, I guess tie. You know, be tied with number one. Tied for number one with Adam. So it's
1: not. It's not tied for number one. It's you, you've broken into the three timers club. Adam is the only four, and there is uh, a five. And now I'm blanking uh, on Dude, who that Bob is. Even.
2: Right, Dan Bach. Dan Bach.
1: That's right. Dan Bach is our five. He's he's so point is you're in range though, Dan, of 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 the okay. of the record.
2: Okay. Well, and, thank you very much. I'll try to keep the, the I'll try to keep the controversial takes uh, coming strong, so I can merit future appearances. So, <laughs> gives me something to to shoot for as I'm writing. There you go, and it's 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 never a stretch for
1: you to uh, to to come up with something uh, controversial and uh, that that catches people. And uh, may, maybe we'll start with a, a controversial topic here with what's happening with Florida sports betting, a topic you've been quite vocal about lately. Uh, I won't ask you to re-explain all the ins and outs of why the compact agreed to by the state and the Seminole Tribe violates Igra, as John and I sum some of that up on a recent episode. But I will ask you to elaborate. On the conclusion of the article you recently wrote for Forbes, Uh, you said that you believe mobile sports betting will not be legalized through this compact and paramutual facilities won't be able to offer sports betting and it'll end up with only brick and mortar betting at Seminole Properties. You wrote, quote, this would be the unintended consequence of approving an Igra deficient compact, or perhaps that was the plan all along, end quote. How likely do you think it is that the Seminole tribe knew exactly what they were doing and this was, in fact, the plan?
2: Well, I don't think they pulled the wool over the state's eyes on this. I mean, the, the severability language that I pinpointed kind of telegraphs the issue pretty, pretty, you know, expressly that, uh, you know, in the event the federal court determines that the off-reservation <laughs> gambling violates IGRA, then I mean, it, it basically it basically says everything that I pointed to in my article highlights it as a possibility and then says, if that happens, then the compact remains valid and everything else that's off reservation gets stricken out. So uh, I, th- I think that the state may not have fully appreciated the ramifications of that provision. I don't, I don't think this was unequal bargaining power, but I mean, you're talking about tribal gaming attorneys that know the IGRA law very well, uh, even though they're pushing the envelope on this law because no federal compact has ever included mobile sports betting. And there's a reason for that, as you alluded to at the beginning of of, of the question, it just hasn't happened because the way the statute is structured, gaming activities have to be on Indian land, not off Indian land. So I'm not sure that the state fully appreciated uh, how risky or how likely it would be for this compact to be declared partially invalid because were that to happen, then the paramutuals get shut out of the process because their participation Uh, takes place exclusively off of tribal land. And that's not something that you can include in a compact. So if it's blue penciled off the compact, then how do the paramutuals get sports betting? Because they won't get it through the compact and there isn't going to be any parallel legislation that authorizes it outside the compact. So this is what you're left with. And I think it's a a likely scenario, but it's tied not to Daniel Wallach's hypothetical. It's tied to the state of the law coupled with the most important consideration, someone has to file suit. And I think the way that this compact is structured, it gives all of each of the paramutual facilities a disincentive to sue because if they challenge the compact, uh, well, they may be on the outside looking in when the tribe have their choice. I think think the tribe are not required to contract with every single paramutual facility. I think there's a minimum number and then there's a declining revenue share, depending upon the number of, of tracks that are, that are signed up as, as, as agents within the hub and spoke system. So if you're one of the paramutuals that decides to take the tribe on in court, you may run the risk, if you lose, that you're going to be shut out and, and, and not considered as a commercial a viable commercial partner. So I'm not sure that the, any of the paramutual facilities are going to step up to the plate. So when I write my article and draw the conclusions... It's based on the assumption that somebody, anybody, a college, a local government, a mutual facility, Bet365, any competitor, anyone with skin in the game could file a lawsuit that would be considered someone who's adversely affected by this compact that satisfies Article 3 standing under the U.S. Constitution. And that's a pretty wide group. So I would think someone or some entity will emerge out of the dust and file an IGRA lawsuit. But if it doesn't happen, then my article is just a, a really interesting law school hypothetical on a final exam and, it's, and it doesn't have any independent meaning. Uh, but it is it is what I consider a likely outcome if if the courts or the federal agencies reviewing the, the compact uh, follow precedent and follow the plain and, and unambiguous language in the statute. I mean, uh, gaming activity, that's defined by the Supreme Court as placing the focus on the gambler not the equipment. And Indian land is defined narrowly to mean the reservation and any tribal trust property. So how do you justify a bet placed off reservation as satisfying the gaming activity solely on Indian land requirement? You would have to rewrite the statute or amend IGRA to make that legally viable. So is it possible that the Department of the Interior could uh, put their thumb on the scale and try to um, Uh, rationalize it by pointing to how New York, New Jersey, uh, Michigan, and Rhode Island do it under state law. I suppose that could happen, but that that would be following state law contract principles, which are rejected under the federal cases which have looked at the same issue in the context of IGRA.
1: Right, and and so just uh, obviously, as we've seen in countless other states, mobile is where the money is, where most of the betting takes place. If you only have land-based sports betting, it only gets you so far as a state in terms of the amount of betting handle and, and revenue and all that. Do you have some sort of a sense of whether any of this is moving, has moved Florida any closer to actual mobile sports betting or, or what your guess would be as, as to the timeline of if, uh, if, if you're telling someone who's in Florida and waiting to bet uh, on their phone, any clue how, how close or far the state is from that right now? Well, I
2: suppose if you really want it badly enough, it will happen. And, and the state legislature is essentially going to be under the thumb and under the will of Governor DeSantis. They, they will override his will, uh, you know, no, no differently than uh, the Republican Congress. Uh, overrode the will of President Trump. I mean, this is just preordained uh, because this was negotiated by Wilton Simpson, Republican lawmaker, outgoing Senate President. Uh, th- this had the fingerprints and the, ha- the you know the fingerprints of Senate leadership and House leadership. This is not something that is uh, simply being dropped on the lap of the legislature without without any aforethought. This is this is coming to them almost as a you know pre-baked, pre-approved deal, and the expectation is that the legislature will ratify it. No matter no matter how legally deficient it is, no matter how many threats John Swinsky makes that this violates the state constitution, and and I'm and I'm you know I I know he's rattling a lot of sabers, but his argument I think is misplaced. He's focusing on the non-tribal aspects of the sports betting violating the state constitution. That's not a strong argument, and I've raised that elsewhere. The better argument is that this falls outside the boundaries. Of Indian land and is not something that can legally be included within a compact that's a much easier case to make than trying to argue that sports betting is not or is casino gambling that might be more of a fact intensive examination Uh, here under igra it's either on land or off land. Ah, uh, this is not something that can be like you know, you know, uh, you know, parsed out through complexities. It's either on or it's off. It's a very easy analysis. And my exam, and my article that came out a couple of days ago in Forbes examined the not just the universe of cases, but the galaxy of cases that have addressed uh, the issue of internet gambling and off reservation gambling in the context of whether this satisfies the Indian lands requirement. And you've got a Supreme Court decision. And you've got a statutory definition. Those are unambiguous uh, definitions of what constitutes gaming activity on Indian lands. And every court that has examined it in the internet context has, had, has held that the location of the server is not the relevant consideration. You look at it from the uh, vantage point of where the gambler places the bet, where he makes his decision, where he spins the roulette wheel, where he draws the card, and you know makes all of his betting decisions. It's it's better focused. Not equipment focused and it 's a slam dunk however uh, i don 't think this issue gets enough attention in in the media or at least within the you know policymakers because it 's somewhat complicated i mean this might be one of the few times Igra has ever been discussed on on a, on a on a sports gambling podcast. It's somewhat of one of those arcane laws that really hasn't gotten the attention it needs because most of the states that have legalized sports betting have done it outside of the compacting process. So it's somewhat unfamiliar uh, to, to most and certainly to most gaming lawyers. So it, it, it's you know, what I tried to accomplish with this article was to, I wouldn't say dumb it down, but to simplify it uh, by by not only using you know uh, the, re- the rhetoric that I've used on radio programs, but I've shown my work, I've shown my math, and, and, and basically laid out the foundation of the legal argument with citations to case law, quotations to the court's opinion. I mean, if you read that article, and you still think that this is going to pass muster on IGRA, uh, you're basically wishing for, you know, this is like a one in a thousand, that a federal court is going to ignore all this case law. I believe, however that the legislature will in fact ratify it. And I believe that the Department of the Interior uh, is likely to approve this, or at least as John mentioned two weeks ago, uh, to let the 45 days run out and to no action approve it and just leave it up to the prospect of somebody suing over it. Uh, But I I think it's more likely than not that this will get uh, past the next two stages. And could mobile betting be available in Florida this year? I suppose so. But if someone sues any any entity withstanding sues and the and a court follows the precedent in this issue, uh, I don't see how mobile will ever get implemented in Florida in 2021. It would require uh, one of these like outlier decisions which ignore the plain language of the statute.
0: Yeah. And we got a conservative Supreme Court. So there I would. I would think they're less likely uh, even uh, to say, Oh, wait a minute. You know, we, we got a feeling for, her. we know what they really meant that we're going to do this. We're going to do that. But I'm more interested in going to California, the biggest fish of all. Now that's a state, uh, you know, huge population, even bigger than Florida. It's got tribal casinos uh, even more than Florida and uh, it has uh, horse racing and has horse racing lobbyists uh, even more than Florida, I would say. So uh, are they really similar or not similar and kind of what's the lay of the land in California and, And it it looks on the surface like Florida is, you know, halfway down the track and California is not even out of the gate yet. But uh, is Florida really that far ahead? And is it possible that California ultimately gets uh, sports betting and mainly mobile sports betting, which, as we said, is the is the key? uh, Could they possibly get it before Florida does? Uh,
2: That's highly unlikely uh, because uh, California has a different issue to contend with, which is the state constitution um, has a prohibition against casino style gambling. And I've testified um, about a year and a half ago that I don't think sports betting falls within the prohibition of casino gambling for the same reasons I've held that it doesn't in Florida. Uh, however, uh, California. Uh, policymakers and stakeholders have proceeded as if a ballot measure is the only way to accomplish it. So it's going to take a little bit longer, whereas the legislature and the governor are going to proceed down the compacting route and try to avoid the constitutional issue by going directly through the legislature rather than to the people. In California, both the tribes and uh, the state legislature have proposed competing ballot measures. The, the, the legislature, legislative measure had uh, proposed mobile betting. Uh, but we're not able to get that on the onto the ballot because the tribes uh, are very powerful in California and we're able to convince enough lawmakers to not vote for it. So it never came to a vote. So where we stand today in California is that the counties are verifying signatures from the uh, tribes uh, uh, ballot initiative, which proposes for land-based sports betting only, no mobile betting. It calls for... Brick and mortar betting at every, you know, I guess, tribal government that has casino gaming, which is roughly about 70 or 80 casinos and at qualifying racetracks in four different counties. So what you're going to be left with here, if this measure passes, is in-person sports betting at roughly 95 tribal casinos and maybe four or five racetracks. So the status of that measure is that the tribes collected 1.4 million signatures and needed maybe about a million to get onto the ballot. So they had a little bit of a cushion. And currently the counties are hand counting each of the signature cards to verify whether all of the signatures or each of the signatures is genuine. And at the current pace, I mean, there are updates on the Secretary of State's website uh, every couple of days. The tribes are... Uh, well ahead of the pace where they need to be in order to qualify uh, their ballot measure for the statewide ballot. And we're going to know by the end of May whether the tribal measure does qualify for the ballot. And I'm pretty confident that their measure will get onto the statewide ballot, which will then lead to the next question. What year is it going to be? Is it going to be 2021 or is it 2022? And the plan all along was for this to be 2020, and then the pandemic uh, came along and delayed things, and that pushed it over to 2022. But then along came this recall measure for Governor Gavin Newsom, and that prospect or that, that, that recall process is going to go to a special statewide election uh, later this year. And I think the tribes in California are arguing, well, if they do qualify for the ballot, We don't have to wait until 2022. We can get onto the ballot in 2021 because the California Constitution allows these citizen initiatives to make it onto the statewide ballot, either during general elections, which are even numbered years, or during special statewide elections. Uh, So this is similar to what happened in 2003 when Gray Davis The governor of California was recalled and all of these ballot measures or several ballot measures uh, were were sort of hitched to the bootstraps of the uh, Gray Davis recall and got onto the statewide ballot, even though it was an odd numbered year. So that's what the tribes in California are going to be arguing, because uh, it's in their interest to get this onto the ballot as quickly as possible without delay, because the legislature, may have their own measure a year from now. So right now, the uh, the tribes are basically the only ballot measure or oh, the only potential ballot measure that can get onto the statewide ballot in 2021. And I think uh, having the uh, the recall election will bring out a large turnout and they perceive that the measure would more likely pass this year, uh, you know, with the, with, with the governor recall election and really no opposition coming from the legislature, that they're basically, you know, the only show in town. Whereas next year, maybe there'll be much more spending and advertising in favor of a legislative measure, or maybe the stakeholders will try to push back against the tribal brick and mortar measure. And I'm hearing rumors that the professional sports teams may uh, propose their own ballot measure for 2022. So I think the tribes see 2021 as their best case scenario uh, for having a trial for what would be essentially a tribal brick and mortar monopoly uh, in California, but it it, it would go forward this year rather than next year, because next year is going to be all this competition uh, from other potential measures. Okay. So
1: we've talked about Florida and we've talked about California Moving away from the, the big four states, the, those two and also New York and Texas, looking at all the other states, what, what do you see as the most interesting developing plot in sports betting legalization right now? Is there a particular state you're fascinated by in terms of when or whether they'll pass something or, or, or just what the plan they're working on might look like?
2: Uh, two issues that transcend uh, particular states, and I'll, I'll get to the states in a second. I, sure. I, I think the... Um, uh, what I'm seeing as an emerging trend in states with very strong governors is the sort of you know moving further and further away from more of a competitive landscape and having uh, more of a restricted environment that favors uh, a couple of operators. New York and Florida being you know you know two two examples are they outliers or are they you know maybe you know a trend towards the future? And California shaping up to be the same way. Uh, that's one issue. The other. Is what are we going to do about tribal participation in online gaming? I mean, we now have three states that are going to move forward with compacts that allow tribes to have mobile betting. So, for the same reasons that I or that that I've you know indicated and argued that maybe there's a Igra issue in in Florida, the same issues infect the compacting process in Connecticut and and in Arizona where tribes are being um, given the opportunity to operate mobile sports books pursuant to amended compacts. And the reason that hasn't raised you know, much dust in Arizona is that everybody's happy. There's, everyone, there's no disgruntled stakeholder. Every stakeholder is gruntled. So there's, no, <laughs> there, there, there's absolutely no controversy of, over what the tribes have been given in Arizona. But I think Connecticut might be more of a microcosm. What I expect to see in Florida, although Florida looks like it's going to go to legislation before Connecticut does, but you have a tribal mobile monopoly almost in, in Connecticut where the two tribes will control two out of the three skins, and the horse racing industry, the off track betting locations, are getting no participation in mobile. They were shut out of the legislation, and that could be a scenario. Uh, where you could see litigation over the scope of IGRA. And then, of course, the third issue that uh, I look at as somewhat surprising is the absence of the voice of the better and the consuming public in the policymaking world. I remember five, six years ago, maybe less, when Daily Fantasy Sports was on the verge of extinction. These companies were able to uh, astroturf and, you know, have all these like protests and, you know, write in your uh, they have these movements to basically um, work their consumer base up to send in emails and call the, the lawmakers. And it just seems to me that it, in, in all of these public policy discussions and the hearings that are taking place in state legislatures across the country, the customer has absolutely no advocate. These are all industry uh, representatives, their tribes, their casinos, their racetracks. Uh, the, the voice of the consumer, which powers this whole thing, is not being heard because there's no organized representation. And if you look at what is emerging out of New York and Florida, these are very, two very extremely consumer unfriendly sports betting proposals. And where's the outcry? The outcry is coming from the uh, stakeholders uh, that you know, want in and are being cut out. But I think there's an, a, a lack of an organized movement. Uh, where the sports better can, can, can exercise their, their voice and have the power of numbers. And that's completely missing here in contrast to the daily fantasy sports, you know, legislative movement that depended almost entirely on a grassroots movement to get the state legislatures to listen.
0: Yeah, Daniel, uh, we got the uh, third anniversary of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court landmark decision uh, uh, eliminating PASPA. uh, So that's three years ago. And um, obviously, you know, for insiders, they realize that June 2017, the Supreme Court takes the case. That kind of uh, tips their hand. And uh, December 2017, they have oral argument in D.C. And that made it almost incredibly clear where it was going. And then May 2018, uh, a lot of people who had not seen it coming suddenly realized that the landscape has changed. But um, help my memory, because we both go back many years on this. But it seemed to me there was a point before the Supreme Court took the case that I don't know if it was a eureka moment, but there was some point at which he realized not only did you think that it was a, a bad law, which even Justice Ginsburg at one point had sort of uh, alluded to briefly in, a, in an offhanded comment, uh, you know, everybody knew it was kind of a nutty law. But the idea that it could be overturned and New Jersey could actually win the case was was seen as a long shot. So, you know, help my memory is that was there a point at which you realized that not only you know should this law be knocked out, but that you thought it would be?
2: Uh, I think the turning point for me was the uh, call for the solicitor general's opinion during the merits briefing process before the U.S. Supreme Court. I thought it was very telling uh, that uh, the court asked for the views of the solicitor general because remember, Christie one, the Supreme Court just denied cert. Right. And that was that was like a kind of a full facial attack on the constitutionality of of PASPA, which I would think would be where the the real issue was. And that was ultimately what the court focused on in Christie two. But it was a much narrower issue in Christie two, even though it raised different kinds of federalism concerns. So what caught my attention as a differentiator was Geez, this is a really big thing. The court actually paused and said, "We want to hear from the solicitor general." That's number one. Number two was the timing factor. Um, it, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, this had little to do with it in actuality, but it, it came down to the last week of the Supreme Court's calendar in, in the Supreme Court term in uh, the last week of June. And when I took a look at all of the cert grants that had been you know, issued prior to the last week. I compared it to the prior year, and the Supreme Court was well behind the process of, of of cert issuances from where it stood a year prior. I think, by way of example, I think there were 29 cert grants for the prior term, and at the moment where I wrote that article, in the le- like right before the last week of the session, there were like 10 fewer. And I thought, wait a second, uh, judges or justices when they come back, you know, from their summer recess. They're going to want to work on something, and, and I, I speculated that, uh, and, and I didn't just speculate without, uh, you know, contacting people. But I spoke to some Supreme Court insiders, Amy Howe of Scotus Blog, and I said, "Is there anything to the notion that um, that they need some cases to fill out their docket?" And she said, "Absolutely, absolutely." So, given how many openings or slots there were, if you were going to go by the prior year's cert grants, I thought, well you have the solicitor general request for the, for the views you have the, the the urgency of the last week having to you know issue a number of cert grants just to play catch up and then of course you have the you know federalism issue it seemed it seemed to me to be uh, the kind of case that the court would probably take given how you know, given its actions during the pendency of the of, of the of the merits briefing and of course the urgency Caused by oh my God, it's like last day we, we're not going to have enough work uh, for next year's term, and I know that might seem crazy to people, but uh, you know I spoke to a number of insiders and they said yeah that uh, the numbers so I, so I think the timing worked out like perfectly for uh, for christy too. If it had been considered earlier in the session, maybe it's a different story. So the delays and the timing of everything I think just played right into Ted Olson's hands and right into. Uh, Governor uh, Murphy's hands. And uh, we, we, we ended up with a perfect storm of, you know, the timing of this issue being laid up on a silver platter to give it a, a much higher chance of success than might otherwise ordinarily have had at a different point in time during the term.
0: And yet this uh, the interesting part was that uh, there were more than 100 cases that were up for the Supreme Court. And only only this one is the only one that uh, the court asked the solicitor general to look into. Uh, but, you know, you didn't mention that the solicitor general did look into it and decided, you know what? You don't need to take this case.
2: And I oh, think you but John, had- John, wait a second, John. <laughs> that, that, that wasn't a solicitor general like dealing at arm's length from the case. This was a solicitor general that was representing the federal government. That was a, an intervener or like an interested party in the case. Usually when the court asks for the views of the solicitor general, I mean, I'm not a Supreme Court practitioner but I did enough research on this. Mm-hmm. It, the normal situation is when you know the, 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 the government is outside and not part of the litigation asked to weigh in with its views on the constitutionality of a federal statute. Here, the, the, the Solicitor General, quote unquote, had skin in the game by virtue of having uh, asserted positions throughout the Third Circuit case the, and the Supreme Court case. They were not a newcomer to the proceedings. So it, was ba- it would be basically like asking one of the parties to the case, who do you think should win? I mean, how much weight are you going to accord to the viewpoint of a de facto party?
0: But then why bother asking them at all? I think there was like a 20-game winning streak where the previous 20 times that this, the court had asked for input from the Solicitor General, uh, roughly 10 times uh, the Solicitor General said, take the case. And 10 times they said, you shouldn't. And I think in every case, the court uh, deferred to the wisdom of the Solicitor General's office. So uh, this time they undid it. So, so why bother asking that court at all if they're, uh, as you say, if they're sort of a biased party in the first place?
2: Maybe maybe the you know, information contained in the response was telling because I think the uh, Solicitor General uh, advanced a position that was at variance with what was asserted by the same office in Christie one and and maybe that stood out like wait a second you argued this in Christie one and now you're arguing this in Christie two how do you square those so maybe the maybe the SG's office didn't do a good enough job of 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 uh, you know convincing the court why the two positions were reconcilable because it stood out to me at the time that they were simply recanting a prior position, which raises more red flags, I think, if you're sitting in the justices' position. And of course, we don't we 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 have no idea what the justices are thinking. We're just you know speculating. But uh it it seemed to me that the Solicitor General's office played a key role in Christie one. They were the ones who had oral argument. I think it was a prior SG or whoever the AUSA was, but the government took the position in oral argument at Christie one uh, where there was only one third circuit oral argument at the time here. And in Christie two, we had two different oral arguments, but at the Christie one oral argument before the third circuit, the SG said flat out uh, more strongly than the leagues did that the uh, state of New Jersey could repeal its sports betting prohibitions in whole or in part without violating PASPA. That statement went further than anything the league said, and that anything the majority court opinion in Christie one said, which was very similar, but I think the SG went a little bit further down that continuum and was more absolute about it.
0: So I I'd never thought about that before. So I guess, in effect, that almost might have been a compromise. Like, look, we're going to take this case. But OK, I see your point. We'll give SG and, and in effect, the U.S. government one last chance to, to talk us out of it. And then when they got the argument that they heard, it was like, you know what? They, we gave them their chance. You know, We all agree. And they blew it. So now we're going to take the case and now we're going to overturn it. I had never thought of it that way before
2: i i hadn 't either until I you know you made me refresh my recollection earlier today. <laughs> it had been a while, but remember to uh, uh have a cert grant uh, it 's not a vote on who should win it 's simply is this case interesting enough? Should this be one of the cases we consider and it 's a it 's a, it's a rule of four four out of nine justices, of course. I don't know you know after after uh, President Biden may you know end up adding additional justices, they may have to call it the rule of seven, but only four out of nine, and you had new you had a new supreme court justice uh you know justice gorsuch so uh, i I think the the mix was different than it was in 2014 when the composition of that court at the time. Uh, passed on the petition for it assertiare that was filed by New Jersey. So you're looking, I don't know how many different judges there were, whether it's one or two different ones, but you had a a slightly different twist on the federalism issue and uh, a more right-leaning justice added to the bench. So maybe that was the difference more than anything else.
1: All right, well I, I've just checked with our podcast solicitor general who we trust implicitly and uh, he has recommended uh, that we do have you on a fourth time sometime soon dan uh, this this uh, was a, another excellent interview and uh, none, none of our listeners are are gruntled uh, after hearing you uh, talk i'm sure
2: yeah, well this hasn't gone out <laughs> live yet, so we'll reserve judgment but count me in count me in. listen john John was the first i mean i wasn't doing this my entire career in two thousand and twelve. I had absolutely nothing to do with gaming or sports betting or, or sports law. Out of, out of it completely, I was just some, I, I was a litigator in South Florida and I began uh, to cover or, or handle a litigation matter involving a racetrack in late 2012, or early 2013. It scratched niche and I began writing or create, I, I created a blog and began writing about the case and, and nobody really gave a damn about it except for John. John was the first and only person who actually took an interest in um, any of my musings about Christy One. And I don't know how I got on his radar because I didn't just simply, uh, hey, John, check this out. And maybe I emailed you. Maybe I emailed you. Well, however it came to be, you're the one who basically made all this happen because having the confidence of getting quoted by the great John Brennan and, and, <laughs> and uh, oh God, what was the name of the blog again? Your blog? Uh, lands uh, Matters, yes. Uh, Meadowlands Matters. For me, I, I, in 2013, that was like the equivalent of getting quoted in the Wall Street Journal. And I was I, I remember sending it truly, truly was. I remember circulating it like, holy shit, I got quoted uh, for my take in the case. And he linked it to the blog post. That's all it took, John. You created this like this thing that now I'm doing, you know, seven, eight years later. So, you know, thank you very much. So you can always count on me to appear on your podcast. <laughs> or just to meet you for coffee in Hackensack, sure. New Jersey, and talk about sports betting. <laughs> Whatever you want to do, I'm all in because I'm, I'm very grateful for the support you gave me earlier in my career. So thank you very much, John.
0: Well, you, you, filled, uh, you filled a niche for me uh, in my articles. Believe me, I, uh, I had, a, had a, a little bit of a vacuum. I mean, it's nice for me to pontificate about these things, but not actually having a law degree, it kind of helps that, to have somebody who actually knows what the hell the law is. So uh, yeah, we, uh, we helped each other out.
1: All right. Well, John uh, is well worthy of your thanks, uh, Dan, and and you're well worthy of ours for joining us again on the podcast. Thanks for coming on
2: Gamble On. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Eric. I'll see you again for number four someday. (laughs) Definitely. Thank you. Bye-bye. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll.
1: If I could sum up the week our bankroll had in a single syllable, John, it would be this. You. <laughs> we stunk, both of us. We went o for everything. Let's run through it quickly. Uh, not painlessly, but quickly. Uh, my two bets. The Hornets to beat the Bulls as a home dog last Thursday. Nope. The Bulls won by 21 points. Uh, my other bet was arguably a bit unlucky. I had Canelo Alvarez to beat Billy Joe Saunders on points, and it was probably headed that way until an uppercut in round eight broke Saunders's orbital bone and he and his corner threw in the towel between rounds. Thankfully, I bet it's small. We only lost $50 there. As for your bets, you also went small on your angels run line bet. So it only cost us $50 when they lost eight to three to Tampa Bay. And you had three golf bets that added up to a hundred dollars, $10 on Zalatoris to win $40 on Neiman top 10 and $50 on Lowry top 30. All of them missed. Uh, And one more piece of bad news. The Vegas Golden Knights finished their regular season Wednesday night. I bet them under 75 and a half points. They finished with 82. I whiffed badly there. So we can grade that one as a $112 loss. The only good news is that next week we'll get to grade some basketball bets, one of which your Lakers bet is already a winner. And we have a great sweat on my Mavericks bet. They need to win their two remaining games against the eliminated Raptors and Timberwolves. And we'll hit the over. Plus the Wizards playoff sweat continues. In any case, for now, we lost four hundred twelve dollars, counting that Golden Knights future, putting us at depressing one thousand one hundred thirty-four dollars in the hole. We also have two thousand two hundred forty-three dollars on hold in futures bets, so that leaves us with six thousand six hundred twenty-three dollars available to bet with this week. And you're up first, John.
0: Uh, Don't forget that modest bet on the Maple Leafs to capture their first Stanley Cup since I began uh, collecting hockey cards as a youngster. Uh, That's a really good team. Uh, As for the golf, you know, Neiman Neiman was right church, wrong pew. I I knew he'd play well on a difficult, windy course, but asking the youngster to go top 10 was too bold. He finished tied 18th. You know, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered or something like that. Um, And my Angels pick, um, so the the concept of the bet was Andrew Haney is a left-hander. He can strike people out. Tampa Bay strikes out a ton against – uh, lefties, and sure enough, Haney strikes out ten in five innings, and he leaves in the seventh inning with a one nothing lead or a one run lead,ed whoever it was. Uh, and I didn't take into account the fact that the Angels' bullpen is horrible because I follow the National League a lot closer than the American League. So uh, the bad news is it was stupid for me to bet on American League game, and the good news is I only bet fifty bucks because I'm <laughs> only half as stupid as I could have been. Uh, and, and, so, and
1: maybe it's a lesson to uh, start thinking about those uh, first five inning bets that have become very well, popular
0: in baseball. Exactly. I yeah and that's exactly what this would have done it's like that's that focus on the starting pitcher he's going to do well the guy pitched a great game so that was a winner i mean i had i had it right in my hand and like an idiot i i depended on a one of the worst bullpens in, in baseball which is, which is stupid so uh, sticking with baseball i'll make that my first bet then um okay you know arizona pitcher uh merrill merrill kelly he's 50 units at plus 102 over Miami and Trevor Rogers, you know, Rogers has been impressive, but you know, I'm getting a slight home dog with a pitcher who is better at home. It's a team that has not hit right-handed pitching that well. And I do know that Miami's bullpen is a little bit more taxed than Arizona. So there's that. So uh, 50 units at plus one Oh two.
1: Okay. So, and that's just a straight up uh, money yeah, line where, bet on Arizona. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, for my first bet, I'll go with boxing. A really fun main event of a Showtime triple header from Carson, California this Saturday. Junior featherweights, both undefeated. Luis Neri versus Brandon Figueroa. Neri is a small ish favorite, minus 278. I think that's a fair price. I think he'll probably win. I, I think Figueroa is, is just too easy to hit, hasn't been tested at this level. It feels to me like a fight in which Neary separates himself as it goes along, and my prediction is a stoppage win for Neary somewhere later in the fight. Well, DraftKings has an attractive price of plus 325 on Neary to win by KO in round 7 through 12. So anywhere in the second half of the fight, we want Figueroa to get through the first six then crumble anytime after that. So uh, with, with a nice plus money return like that, we don't have to risk too much of the bankroll to get a decent payout. Let's go $40 to win 130 on Neary by KO between 7 and 12.
0: All right, I like that. And we're golfer back to Texas in the uh, Byron Nelson Classic. And uh, going Scotty Scheffler, um, just putting... And 10 at plus 1800, um, which is going to be a signal that he's going to finish in the top 10. He's not going to win, so I'm not betting him top 10, but uh, let's just keep that in mind. Uh, I'm going to go back to Zalatoris, uh, 40 at plus 200 to be top 10 for the newlywed and, and Texan. And finally, uh, Matt Kucher. this one really surprised me. That's why I'm going 50. Uh, He's been playing better of late, and he has a good history in Texas. And he's plus 188 for top 20. So 50 at plus 188, top 20 for Kucher. All right. Uh,
1: For my second bet, it's an NBA futures bet, but it doesn't require a long wait. DraftKings has the Boston Celtics to miss the playoffs at plus 550. I love this one. Here's the situation. The Celtics are locked into the play-in games. They're currently number seven, can't move up to number six. They can still slip to eight or nine, which, wow, that would be sweet if they fell to nine, but it's unlikely. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt and assume they finish number seven. We're betting on a parlay of them losing two games in a row against some combination of the Hornets, Pacers, and Wizards. Normally, a two-game parlay is plus 270, This is plus 550, which would imply the Celtics are solid favorites in those games. They are not at all. The Celtics are a mess. They're having a worst-case scenario season. Almost everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. They've now lost four in a row, including to the lowly Cavs last night, and by 22 points to the Bulls recently. Their second-best player, Jalen Brown, injured his wrist last week and is done for the season. They're basically one of the five or six worst teams in the NBA at this moment, but because they were a decent-ish team for most of the season, they'll be part of the play-in tournament. Uh, Right at this moment, I make them a solid underdog in one game versus Indiana or Washington, about even money versus Charlotte. Obviously, it would be sweet if Boston could play Indiana and then Washington and avoid Charlotte, and there is a realistic chance it could work out that way. In any case, I'd consider a bet on the Celtics to miss the playoffs at about plus 350. Uh, we're getting plus 550. So I love it. Let's bet $30 to win 165. And uh, I never need extra incentive to root for a Boston team to lose. But uh, I'm giving myself some extra incentive here.
0: Yeah, I'll jump in on that. I like that. I I tell you from, you know, seeing it first firsthand, I've never come across a team that wanted to lose that wanted to go home. But I've seen plenty of teams that didn't hate the idea that much. And (laughs) so like, it's not that they try to lose. It's just that they all try to win, but there's trying to win and there's really like, I have to win. I need to win. I have to get there. We have to salvage, like we all those things that just drive you a little bit further. You dig a little deeper in the big spot. And yeah, the teams that are that dysfunctional, they don't have that extra gear. So I, I like your bet. All right,
1: and that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening, and thanks again to our guest, Dan Wallach. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan, and follow US Bets at us underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling, and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And with that, John, please take us out.
0: Well, here we are on the cusp of that third anniversary of that SCOTUS-PESPA ruling, and there I score a double acronym. (laughs) So let's briefly review. It's almost 10 years ago that New Jersey decided to thumb their nose at a federal law that prevented any other state from doing what Nevada did as far as Las Vegas-style sports betting. Now, from there, we had a federal judge whose brother was ex-Arizona running back Marcel Ship repeatedly signed for the sports leagues against New Jersey. We had a two to one third circuit ruling where the judge writing the majority opinion said that hey, New Jersey could have sports betting, just not the way they tried to get it. But then there was a failed effort to get to the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case, a new state law passed that's quickly vetoed by Governor Christie, a slightly amended version that he then signed, another loss in court, another two to one third circuit opinion, except this time the judge who wrote that majority ruling this, this time wound up as the dissenting judge. He was overruled by two newcomers in the case. And of course, why not? One was Marjorie Rendell, the, then the wife of Ed Rendell. He's the Pennsylvania governor who's opposed to gambling, but whose support of keeping state residents' discretionary income at home and the tax money at home, uh, led to the opening of Eastern Pennsylvania casinos that directly led New Jersey lawmakers to seek to bail out Atlantic City casinos by methods such as, wait for it, getting sports betting added to the amenities list at those casinos. And the other judge of course would be the older sister of a former atlantic city casino <laughs> executive who in 1993 lobbied for new jersey to take advantage of its unique one-year grace period set up by PASPA and uh, to legalize sports betting in atlantic city casinos and that executive of course was donald trump and less than a decade later he left the casinos uh, battles there in, in atlantic city and who knows he probably just retired after that or something i don't know um so that's all it took for us to get there and And now that everyone's up to speed, uh, until next time, gamble on, everybody. Hey, it worked for New Jersey, after all, and therefore for any state that wants in on the action.